You're listening to Ecotones Now. We're a 100% independent, volunteer-run podcast companion to the award-winning site Environmental History Now, a platform to showcase the work and expertise of graduate students and early career scholars who identify as women, trans, and or non-binary people. I'm Emma Mosswild. I'm Natalie Jo Rose Wilkinson. And we're your hosts for this season, Our Community's Voices. Today, Kristen Brig-Ortiz shares The Environmental Impact of Protest, A View from South Africa. On July 13th and 14th, 2021, protesters set two factories in Umschlanga, South Africa on fire, releasing plumes of chemical smoke and flows of polluted fluid into the surrounding areas. The fires were part of a larger explosion of uprisings across the provinces of KwaZulu-Natal, or KZN, and Hauteng. They formally began on Monday, June 12th, and carried through the end of the week. As a resident of Durban, the capital city of KZN, located directly south of Umschlanga, I was simply consumed with basic necessities at first. With my grocery store looted, where would I get food when my shelves ran out? With the petrol stations running out, when would I be able to get gas again? And if they cut off the water supply, would I have enough stocked up until it was back? Yet by the evening of July 13th, the environmental effects of the protests began unavoidably affecting everyday everyday life. Mshlanga's factories were only two of the centers, warehouses, and factories in Durban consumed by protesters' fire. Each night, I went to bed with smoke seeping through our windows and doors, never quite knowing what was burning or where it was. Every morning, I woke to an almost opaque haze hanging over the city and harbor. Perhaps the scariest night was July 15th, when delayed news about the Umschlanga factory fires reached my neighborhood, Glenwood Berea. Not sure if related, but heard that a factory in Cornubia is burning, read the post on my neighborhood group. It stores sulfur, which is also burning. Please close windows, vents, and doors. If outside, protect eyes and use masks. This affects everyone. Even though those factories had burned on the 13th and 14th, not on the 15th, more smoke than usual did indeed waft through my flat that night. I closed my curtains as tightly as possible, turned on the fan to circulate the smoke out of my bedroom, and tucked my head under two layers of blankets. These protests were a burst of anger from some of the most socio-economically depressed communities in South Africa. The underlying economic and political issues fueling these protests covered problems ranging from unemployment to racial discrimination. What is undeniable is that mass looting broke out across the provinces to express anger at the country's worsening economic state and political fracturing. While few, if any, private residences were directly affected, over 200 shopping shopping centers and businesses were wrecked showing frustration at the country's unstable economic situation. And it wasn't just looting. Factory and shopping mall fires, racial vigilantism, 
and disrupted supply chains escalated the crisis in unimaginable ways. One of these ways was the influence on the surrounding environment, exposing the need for urban spaces and infrastructures to prepare for the unexpected. Life gradually went back to normal starting Saturday the 17th, but the environmental devastation still hung in the air, on the ground, and across the beaches. The protest's environmental impact manifested most visibly on the beaches. In Umschlange, the chemical sludge from the factory fires was suspected to have flowed into nearby stormwater sewers, which delivered them onto the beaches and into tidal pools. In the days following, fish, crabs, crayfish, even some octopi littered the beaches from Umschlange to Umschlote. Umschlange Lagoon turned an eerie turquoise blue. Because the sewer's outfalls are located in the walls of beach promenades to lead stormwater out of the town and into the ocean, this means that other fluids can escape the town the same way, leaving behind a trail of ecological devastation. A few miles south, the city of Durban closed its beaches as well. I went to the waterfront on Saturday. Although the beach itself looked fine, the signs hammered into the sand-banned sea bathing indicating bigger issues than the eye could see. Furthermore, I wore my mask while walking, not because of COVID, but because an odd-smelling haze still lay heavy in the atmosphere. Even into early August, some beaches like Westbrooks remained closed to swimmers. All along the Kezadan coast then, the warning was clear. Stay out of the water until deemed safe again, and do not touch or eat the dead animals. The looting also affected the urban infrastructure. Cleanup efforts began almost as soon as the majority of protesting had ended. Trashed goods and packaging were piled in open manholes and near stormwater sewer street outlets and scattered across grassy areas and up in trees. While helping with cleanup efforts in Durban's central business district, I and others found the trash heaps and their smells overwhelming. When mixed with the effluent from burst sewage pipes, the litter was more than volunteers' brooms, trash bags, and gloves alone could handle. Perhaps most surprisingly, the protests also impacted Durban's blue vervent monkeys. They access human food through trash bins in parks or refuse bags put out for pickup. Since the looting forced parks and eateries to close, the monkeys had limited access to their usual food outlets. They already seemed to scheme against the city's human residents, but they were even more forceful with their efforts during the protesting. Someone I know witnessed a group of at least 30 monkeys gather on the street and follow the protesters down it. Additionally, I had a couple monkeys try to get into my kitchen to grab food off my shelf. They usually sit in the trees and don't dare to come near my cracked door or window when I'm home. This time, though... Desperation was in their eyes. These protests have forced me as an environmental historian to think more deeply about the entanglements between political economic protests and where and how they take place. As we try to rectify the underlying structural issues that lead to this kind of violence, how do we acknowledge protesters' concerns while protecting the environment? More specifically, how can we better prepare our urban infrastructure to handle disruptions like arson or mass looting? The speed with which local communities organized and attended cleanup activities 
displays a spirit of economic and environmental recovery. However, municipal and national infrastructure will take longer to recover, as they took little preparation for an event like this. Uprisings like the July 2021 protests in South Africa will only escalate globally as climate change and growing wealth disparities affect an increasing number of communities. Scholars and journalists have covered protests about the environment. Now we need to start discussing how protests more generally impact the environment while recognizing the very real concerns they manifest. So many of us live in a world where these issues are abstractions, things to analyze and write about. Yet for millions more, the need to locate food and water each day trumps concerns about littering or chemicals on beaches. As the global environmental movement has noted repeatedly, in July, South African protests exposed on a smaller scale, we need to prepare for unexpected outcomes from both human actions and non-human developments. It's not just about educating people on how their individual choices affect the environment around them. It's also about creating systemic and infrastructural change, about building spaces that can withstand sudden demonstrations and activities. Ultimately, it's about addressing systemic poverty while creating a healthier environment for all. We're so grateful to our guests for sharing their work with us today. You can find information about them, links to further reading, and a text version of the piece in the show notes. This work was originally published on the Environmental History Now website, alongside so many other brilliant and thought-provoking pieces, which you can explore at envhistnow.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at ENVHIST now. We'll see you soon with more Community Voices. This show is produced and edited by Emma Mosswild and Natalie Jo Rose Wilkinson, with music provided by Natalie Jo Rose Wilkinson and Christine Murphy. Special thanks to Elizabeth Hemateman, to this season's contributors, and to you for listening.